0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I am talking with Leidy Klotz about his new book, Subtract and check it out. Like originally, when I saw this book, you know, it's like the power of you know subtracting in our everyday lives. I'm like, oh, okay, what's this? I'm like, is this some kind of minimalism like type book? But then I did some research online. He found out, you know, kind of the work he does, the research he does, and you know, uh, I was like, okay, okay, this seems kind of interesting. And I'm telling you, I am telling you it blew my mind. Like I love to read, I love to learn, I love books on just different uh, you know, thinking strategies because who among us doesn't wanna make less dumb decisions? Like we can't stop, but we can make less. But anyways, uh, with all this that I read about and try to learn about when it comes to our thinking, like this is something that uh, never crossed my mind. I haven't read any books like it. So Lighting Clots, like when I saw this, I'm like, yo, you need to come on the podcast. We got to talk about your book and all of you listening, you need to head down to the description, make sure you're following Lighty and grab a copy of his book, all right? So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. We talk about how uh, you know, subtraction can you know, help us in different situations, how it could help at work or school or you know even just in everyday life. And we also discuss why it's not intuitive for us to think in this way And we talk about some of the experience he did And and there's there's so many situations Where people are incentivized to think this way And it still doesn't cross their mind So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation But before we get started Make sure you head down to the description And you're following me over on Twitter and Instagram At The Rewired Soul I love chatting with all of you guys And you get to stay up to date On all the cool stuff coming out Alright, but anyways Without further ado Here's my conversation with Lighty Clark about his book, Subtract. Oh, Lighty, thank you so much for taking some time to come on the podcast and discuss your awesome book that blew my brain up called Subtract. So for everybody out there who has yet to read this book, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book and who is your target audience? Because yeah, I was reading it and I just like to read about all sorts of stuff. I'm like, hmm, I wonder who he's kind of writing this for.
1: I'll take the target audience question first. I mean, I think this is a book for for people who want to, who like thinking um, uh, and and understanding more about how their their own thought processes work. I also think it's, and hope that it's practical, um, you know, for people who are engaged in trying to change things from how they are to how we want them to be. Um, That is, uh, this is, provide some general strategies for how we can find more of our options there and i I also hope that it's entertaining i mean i think entertaining maybe not like a page turning novel is entertaining but hopefully entertaining in the context of making you think about your thinking um and the uh the inspiration for the book actually kind of gets to the the topic of the book and explains what i mean by subtracting so um you know, I've, I've been interested in this stuff for a really long time, but one clear epiphany that's has now become kind of the origin story for the book. I was playing Legos with my son, um, who was three at the time and we were building a Lego bridge. And, um, the problem we had was that the bridge wasn't level. And so when I, as I was turning around to grab another block to add to the shorter column of the bridge, um, but my son was actually taking a column away from the, a longer column or, or taking a block away from the longer column on the bridge and so what happened in that moment is actually really close to what we found with our research um after you know tens of thousands of hours of studying this thing was that i overlooked the subtractive option i didn't even think of taking away as a way to make that bridge level um and what we found in our research is that we do this across all kinds of contexts across objects like lego bridges um, and other more uh, more consequential objects but also in our social situations and in our ideas so um, you know the, the lego bridge was the inspiration to kind of start the research and then once we found out in our research, exactly what was going on, then I had to write a write the book. I I felt um, like I was holding things back and I I felt obligated to share what we had found with the world. Yeah. So first off, I love Legos.
0: My son loves Legos. So maybe that's why you hooked me in with this book and that story. But, but yeah, like that's where, you know, I was, I was reading it and you talk about that story and then obviously it goes on and we're going to talk about a few of those things, but I'm like, Oh my God. Like I'm like, a 36-year-old man, and what you were saying just made so much sense, but it, it it's just counterintuitive, this idea of subtracting to find solutions, and yeah, like, uh, I'm glad that you kind of had that in your mind of, like, who the target audience is, it's like, anybody who likes thinking solving problems and stuff because you cover such a wide range of topics and it's like since finishing the book it's really uh helped me in a variety of situations just kind of tackling different problems that we come across whether it's at work home you know whatever it is um so yeah so first question early on in chapter two uh you discuss um one of the famous studies from Albert Bandura, who actually, by the time we're recording this, he actually recently passed away. But yeah, um, he he did phenomenal research, really, really interesting. I've talked about him on my uh, YouTube channel a few times. Um, but yeah, when I talked about him, I heard of you know his famous Bobo doll uh, experiment, which was about modeling behavior and all that. So I hadn't heard about. This, uh, the study that you mentioned or reference in the book. And it was on, I guess, our need to feel competent. So can you give kind of a brief overview of that study from Bandura about why we add as a way to feel competent? And what can we learn from this when it comes to trying to, you know, integrate
1: subtraction into our lives? Yeah, and, and Bandura did a lot of studies um, and and also drew from other people's research to develop this theory, which has become kind of fundamental theory in, um, you know social cognitive theory and, and how people um, kind of approach the, the world. So what his, his theory here is basically, or his definition is our belief in our ability to succeed in specific situations or accomplish a task, right? So, um, and this, our sense of competence and self-efficacy can play a major role how we approach goals tasks and challenges if you if we think we can do it we're going to try if we don't think we do it can do it we're we're not even going to try um and you know so self-efficacy is this kind of internal aspect of it but then competence is you know showing other people that we have this ability to succeed in specific situations or to accomplish a task and that's where it ties into to adding and subtracting right because it's very it's it's easier to show competence through adding in many cases right you know arguably the reason my my son is playing with legos in the first place is because it, it allows him to show competence he creates the the bridge he builds the thousand piece set and right there is evidence of his abilities to succeed and to accomplish a task and when we take things away to make them better that evidence is is sometimes gone, right? So if I, I'm looking around at my messy um, recording studio here, which also doubles as the, the kids playroom. And if I pick up, you know one or two objects out of this room and, and then my wife comes in she's not going to see my competence as a as a husband and that i like helped uh helped clean up some of this room because the things that i cleaned up are gone and this place is still a mess um, the bright side there is that we can display competence by by taking away it's just we have to do more of it often right we have to make it noticeable um and that's one of the reasons i focus on this concept of noticeable less in the book and and talk about some examples of it Um, so you know to use the the room example here if i cleaned up the whole room um then my wife would would notice my competence from me taking away um from from what's already here to make it better so that's uh that's the uh bandura example and it's really important and i was surprised um when doing research for the book just how like uh core to our um our humanness this this need to be competent uh or this need to display competence is
0: yeah and i i think i found that study so interesting because like that's that's something I think a lot of people can relate to, whether it's at you know work or you know students in school. Like you know I have a son too, and uh, you know uh, we we want to show that we're we're competent, right? Like we don't want to be you know uh, I guess kicked out of the tribe. Is like you know the evolutionary psychology <laughs> explanation for it, but you know, at work, we wanna show our competence so we don't, you know, get written up or lose our job and they think we're, you know, dumb or whatever. So it's interesting that uh, it's been researched and it's been studied. And all that because some of us you know we struggle with like self-esteem issues or imposter syndrome so I think just recognizing that and kind of like the roots of it and how we display our competence like I'm glad that was kind of like at the beginning of the book and and in a little bit I'm gonna ask you a question about displaying competence because when I was reading I'm like "I, I don't know if I can Put this into practical use, so I'll I'll get your explanation, you know, for that. But, anyways, um, speaking of research, you started conducting a lot of your own experiments when you developed this theory that we may be better off subtracting in specific or certain situations, and yeah, maybe it's because I was listening to the audiobook and did my best to look at the PDFs. But you you talk about this Lego study, and I was super confused uh you did an excellent job like in the pdf there was like pictures and stuff but i'm like i don't get it so anyways can you kind of explain uh what this experiment was about removing a brick and what we can learn from it and what are some other i don't know interesting findings from the other thousands of hours of research that you put in
1: oh that's uh that's too bad that you were confused i i i um listened to the audio book too uh on a trip about 2 months after the actual book came out and I thought they did an amazing job with the audiobook but I did, you know, as I was listening think about, you know, how the how the figures um, are are not presented in the audiobook. So I don't know, that's a that's an issue with audiobooks that we've got to figure out somehow some um, maybe I should have, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, maybe I should get in a thousand word description that can be added to the audiobook to to show what the picture is. Um, yeah, so so anyway, um we, we conducted our experiments, you know, motivated by my son's bridge, really, um, and trying to to create these situations where adding and subtracting were both an option and to see what what people would choose. Um and we started with Legos, not the specific bridge, but we created this uh <laughs> this structure where basically you could solve it by adding eight Legos or by subtracting one Lego. Um, and people overwhelmingly kept adding eight legos rather than subtracting one and they continued to do this even when we offered a financial incentive so you know here is um here's a dollar that you get for every piece that you add you lose money for every uh out of this dollar reward and so there's this economic incentive to think of subtracting and people still just overlooked it Um, because it was obviously better when when you chose it um, because it was fewer moves and it allowed you to to keep more of your money we we also studied this in itineraries and um, you know so we had this cool travel itinerary of washington dc and at this point in our research we were trying to set things up where people would think to subtract. Um, so we created this jam-packed itinerary that had 12 different things that people did in this like marathon single day in Washington, D.C. Uh, and it was probably impossible to do all of these activities. Um, and if if you did do them, you'd be just sprinting from place to place and not enjoying any of them. But as people looked at this itinerary, the overwhelmingly the way they tried to improve it was to add even more stuff to it, you know, so jam pack, you know, pack in another visit to a museum or add another uh, restaurant visit, for example. Um, so we studied in itineraries, I think, uh, writing a whole bunch of contacts. I think the most convincing study for me, because it was devoid of context, was these grids on a computer screen. And I'll try to explain it better than the audiobook. book. Um, so basically what people had was a, a pattern of grids um, that was displayed in front of them on their screen. And the, the pattern was broken into four quadrants in their task was to try to make the pattern symmetrical from right to left and top to bottom so everything was symmetrical we just put extraneous marks in one of the quadrants Um, so the way to make it the way to take it from having extraneous marks to becoming symmetrical again was to add marks to three of the different quadrants or to subtract marks from one of the quadrants. So again, subtracting was the easier way to do it. We incentivized them, you know, told them to do it in as few clicks as possible, um, and people still overlooked the subtractive change. And you know, what we think is going on here, You know the details of the experiments are cool, but I think the punchline of what's going on is really similar to what happened to me in that moment with my son building the Lego bridge, is that people first think about what they can add to these situations, and then move on you know they they add something they're like okay we've solved this all done moved on um and that's a problem when they don't even think about the subtractive option um and so again the the point of the research is not that uh we should always subtract the point is that we're systematically overlooking this very basic way to change things from how they are to how we want them to be
0: Hey, and by the way, Lighty, like, don't don't worry. Like, as somebody who writes too, it's something that I'm regularly thinking about, especially just like, you know, where we're at. Like, people can listen to it in audio format or, you know, they could be reading it or whatever. And I I think my personal writing style, it's I, I write too much, like how I talk, which I don't know, some people like, some people don't. But anyways, you just explained it perfectly. Like, everything just, just clicked for me. So all, all of you listeners who are gonna get a copy of this book, If you need to come and you and you listen to it like I did come back to this, you explained it uh, amazingly. But I think that's really interesting because you actually incentivize people like they could have made more money, right, if they went the subtracting option and and they they didn't. And that's like I think that's one of the reasons why I found the book so, so interesting, because it, it's not even, it's not even on our radar. It's not even like an afterthought. It's not even like, you know, one of those things where you're laying in bed, you're like, oh, I could have done that easier if I just took away from this. It's nowhere on the map, right? But with your book, now it's something that, you know, we can kind of think about. And and yeah, like the research, I I loved it. I love all the different experiments you guys have done to just kind of see what might even like persuade somebody like to go that way and think about subtracting. but yeah, so you have this entire chapter dedicated to this kind of biology of more, and you discuss some neurological studies that show how we feel rewarded when we add, and you tie it back into the uh, the whole like hunting and foraging days of our ancestors. So for all of us like myself who are fascinated with evolutionary psychology, can you explain the theory as to why we evolved? to turn
1: to adding rather than subtracting in most of these situations? Yeah, the the biology stuff was really interesting for me. I mean, this was an area that I, you know, after we had our kind of experimental findings from all the research we did, I had to go back and look and see, okay, what does, you know, evolution say about this? How might these forces be contributing here? And. You know this is probably review for you and for your listeners but it's important to highlight that you know for any behavior and in this case we're talking about this behavior where we overlook subtraction as a way to make things better there are multiple explanations that reinforce each other um, or kind of work against each other so you know we're going to talk about some of the biological reasons um, i imagine we'll talk about some of the cultural and economic reasons too um, and these are all forces that help explain the behavior but none of that there's no kind of magic bullet here um so the the biological forces though there's some pretty strong ones that pull us to add first is just this desire to acquire right that's kind of aligned with our um aligned with our instinct to eat this you know accumulating food Um, stockpiling food has been an evolutionary helpful behavior and you know researchers like Stephanie Preston is one I mentioned in the book she's at the University of Michigan studies our acquisitiveness and shows how this kind of desire to eat and hoard is continuous with hoarding disorders for example so um, that acquisitiveness certainly seems like it pulls us to add in certain in, in certain cases. Uh, the other one is just this, um, this competence that we talked about with, with Bandura. I mean, that actually is an evolutionary (laughs) behavior. I mean, the classic example are bowerbirds. The, these are the birds that build their ceremonial nests and what they do when those, you know, so the males build this nest, the women, the female bowerbirds go around and look at the nests and then decide who to mate with. And they never use the nest for shelter. There's no kind of, um, uh, there's no benefit there. There, There's simply a display of the male's ability to interact effectively with the world. And that's a sign that this male has good genes and then those genes get passed down. So, you know, again, displaying competence by adding stuff to the world um, is another kind of evolutionary explanation for why we've evolved to turn to adding rather than subtracting in most situations. Yeah,
0: I always find that interesting. One of the reasons I, I enjoy evolutionary psychology is because it seems to really get to the root, but something I've come to realize talking with authors like yourself, and it wasn't until these conversations, like, I don't know, I haven't come across it in a book, is just how how these are, you know, just are the best theories we have because we don't fully understand. Maybe that's just something everybody knows, but me I'm like, "Oh, but I think, you know, there's a lot of great explanations that have come up with and even when I try to think of alternatives, like nothing's come to my mind." Um, but yeah, so so in one of your chapters, I believe it was uh, chapter 4, it it really highlights some of the issues with uh, you know, capitalism and how we're conditioned to want more like you mentioned like you know kind of hoarding behaviors and stuff like that like we are just wired for more and i yeah like i'm a recovering drug addict like (laughs) uh uh, some people in recovery they call it you know the disease of more there's never enough but even for people who, who don't have a problem with substances you know we want more money or we want a bigger house or we want better jobs whatever it is so as many of us know, like depression, anxiety, and addiction rates have been on the rise for years. And I'm I'm curious, do you think this has anything to do with regularly being told and conditioned to, you know, want more? And what do you think the best solution is for people to
1: recognize that more doesn't always equate to happ- happiness? Yeah, there's certainly these economic forces that are pulling us towards more, right? I mean, not the the highest level perhaps gross domestic product this this economic measuring stick that pretty much every country uses that rewards growth whether it's you know a growth in good things or growth in not so good things so you know, prisons for example count in gross domestic product um, treatment for depression anxiety and addiction rates that counts in gross domestic product although you know, be better if we could avoid the need for that in the first place. Um, And I I mean, that's not one of the things that I highlight in the book is that, you know, this is was not the intent of that measure. And that some of the same groups that set up gross domestic product as a measure have are trying to evolve what the how we might measure um, how we might measure things to more accurately reflect what we actually care about, right? So gross national happiness, for example, is an example of a measure that that gets away from just this blunt indicator of more equals better. But, you know, it... (laughs) it's still there. Gross domestic product is still there. I mean, it's still there in quarterly earnings reports. It's still there in, you know, how we think about how your financial planner thinks about your portfolio and how you think about your portfolio. And uh, so so we do. I mean, we want more money. We want a bigger house. We want better jobs. Um, and I think the, the key that I the the key lesson i think that we need to remember there is that you know what we really care about is is progress not necessarily growth right and we don't need to conflate the two and the subtracting is as we're talking about it in this book is a way to make progress it's not um it's not a negative thing so um i i don't know about the kind of correlation with depression anxiety and addiction rates um i I do know there's research that shows, you know, kind of having these social comparisons around where, where people have a lot more than you do actually is, um, is negative. And so I think there's there's that piece of it. Um, and then, you know, the best solution for people to recognize that more doesn't always equal happiness. I mean, that, that part of the question, I think as we can, that's hopefully one of the mindset shifts that the book can help people make is that... Look, there there are multiple ways to try to make things better. In this case, you know, happiness to try to to try to bring happiness and adding stuff to our current situation is one way to try to make things better. But so is subtracting. And if, if people can can think about that um, in the same way that I'm I'm hoping that they can think about this as an option across all of these situations in their lives, then I think that would help with this mindset shift that okay, more is not the same as happiness because it's so obvious when you, when you say it, but it's um, obviously not the way we're, we're acting currently or it's easy to fall into this trap where you, um, where you do assume that more is gonna be the, the only way towards happiness
0: yeah it's 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 really interesting and and as you were saying that I don't think we've covered it in the podcast, but i I want you know everybody to know too like like I think originally when I saw the book, I was like, oh, is this like some book on like you know the the you know uh spiritual nature of like uh, minimalism or something like that. But that's that's not the case. It's more about problem solving and just kind of changing our perspective, which could involve minimalism. And maybe it's, you know, maybe this is, again, just me. But when I see like all the minimalism stuff, I'm just like, eh, I don't know. But just as kind of an overall just you know, looking at our life and our well-being, that kind of subtraction thing. I think, you know, a good good example is, you know, we want more, 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 but if we have every streaming service, for example, it's, we, we got to keep up with every one of those monthly bills or whatever, so what if we subtracted some of them to not worry so much? But yeah, as, as you mentioned, that's, that's one of my other things that I'm constantly researching and reading about and studying, um, I actually just read an early copy of Will Storr's upcoming book, the status game, and there's a lot about that, this social comparison. And right now, you know, people like Gene Twenge and everybody, they're they're researching, you know, the effects of social media on young people and all that. But yeah, absolutely, it's never been easier to compare ourselves to what we have compared to, you know, other people. And I think, you know, it's important that we we all recognize that. Like, when I made that shift in my life and realized, you know, just acquiring more stuff doesn't guarantee my happiness, just, ooh. It's been lovely, but I don't know if I'm ready to like Marie Kondo anything like, uh, but, yeah, but yeah, it's something for people to think about. Um, so yeah, so I, I felt like one of the most uh, interesting things that you pointed out in the book uh, was how this idea of subtraction can play a significant role in the workplace. And while you've like completely sold me on the idea that subtraction can be this magnificent solution, I, I can only imagine what would happen if I did it at work on a regular basis, right? So, so for example, if my boss gave me a project and I showed them everything I subtracted, they're already psychologically wired to think this is a bad thing, right? Like earlier we were talking about how we kind of evolved this way and all these other things. So if, if bosses are wired to see like what I added to something how am I gonna use the lighty message of subtraction? Like they, they might think that, you know, like I, I'm crazy, you know, or, or they'll just not even see the significance of what I did, right? Um, and I, I imagine like, you know, my son's in school, what if he's in a group project? And you know, he says, oh, I subtracted from this. So here's my question. Although you've completely sold me on these other forms of uh, subtraction, what should we do? if it can potentially put our job, our grade, or group members, uh, you know, at risk or have them see us as, you know, not competent or something like that. And what are some solutions that, you know, organizations like on the off chance that a business owner or a manager is listening to this podcast, what are some things that, you know, workplaces or even teachers can do to kind of recognize
1: the the benefits of subtracting? Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a hard one. I mean, the, the, we've talked about this desire to display competence and it's one thing when you, you know, when you're thinking about yourself and you're saying, Oh, well, I could display competence in this other way, but it's another thing entirely to rely on the somebody else evaluating your competence and trust that they're going to be able to see how you've subtracted. So there's a couple things from the book that I think are useful here. One is this idea of noticeable less. So can you subtract enough so that the effort is obvious And a lot of the examples, in the book are are you know kind of show that one that i use is in in music so bruce springsteen has his really stripped down record called darkness on the edge of town and what he did there was um you know really he recorded like 50 songs during this period and he only put you know i think 12 of them on the album and then uh, the songs that are actually on the album, he like stripped down the notes and the instrumentals and the the lyrics um, so that they they were powerful on their own. And the the point here is not that again you should always subtract in music, but he subtracted so much from how he normally wrote that people noticed the difference and people thought of this album as like a revolution in rock and roll so he subtracted and people recognize the competence and i think it's the same with the you know the the messy room example from before it's like if you take us enough stuff away people will notice and, you know you can think of this when you see a really neat graphic or a, a really simple website that's really well done right you look at it and you're like wow that is so clean and streamlined and they really thought about you know maximizing their information to ink ratio. Uh, so so that's one thing is to s- keep subtracting so that it's it's visible and um, and then your boss uh, or your teacher or your group members will see your effort. Um, I think the other the other side of that, right, is that as a boss, as a group member, as a,, um, uh, as a teacher, can you structure things so that people are able to show their subtraction? So one thing I do as a teacher, for example, is I, I allow a rough draft of 10 pages or I require a rough draft of 10 pages and then I require a final paper of... Um, eventually, we get it down to two pages, actually. Um, and so, with the ten-page paper, the students are able to show off. Okay, look, I did the work. I did the the ten pages, and then it's much easier for them to create the two-page version because they know that I know that they they looked, at, they did this this work to to think about the ten-page version. And then the two-page version represents just the most important parts, or just the stuff they have taken away, or just the stuff that they have deemed. Most worthy to stay in that document, and I think you can kind of think about your own workplace and see what those incentives might be. Um, something as simple as kind of shifting the metric from from time spent from you know the the product itself to the time spent on the product. And I certainly don't advocate for people having to report their hours of of how much time they spend on a project because we don't want to um, kind of get in this habit of people. You know, just ramping up more and more and more and more. But it would be, um, it would be interesting to think about. Okay, if you, as you hand in this um, deliverable at your company, you can say, look, I spent 75% of the time doing the research. We came up with 21 things and here are the three most important ones. And I think as a boss, you're kind of the one who needs to, um, needs to set those things up, right? Because it's really hard for an employee to, you know, just come to you with the three things or even to just say, okay, look, I, I did all these 21 things, but here are the three most important so, um, so yeah, two things there. One is subtract enough so that it's visible, and the other is kind of put in place these incentive structures that recognize the effort, um, and therefore pull your um, pull your employees and your you know your students to think about this um, this option that they would other- otherwise overlook. Yeah, and you know, you know what, you know what's interesting about this? Like when I wrote this this
0: question down, like my like I'm I'm very fortunate. Like uh, like I have a workplace where if if my bosses gave me a project, I could probably talk to them. Uh, you know, I, I would probably do it just for safety reasons. Like beforehand, like if they wanted, like, hey, Chris, we want a ten page, you know, whatever. I'm like, I think you know we could probably do it within five. You know what I mean? Like they're they're super cool. But when I was writing the question, I was thinking about these like crazy old bosses <laughs> that i had but yeah definitely like when you're talking about like you know clean website like i'm a fan of like minimalist you know type art and things like that so yeah i think it's just important to have workplaces where you know you can have these conversations and yeah my uh, my lovely girlfriend she's currently In her master's program, she has to write these huge papers. These huge papers, right? There's like these, you know, these limits that you gotta hit. I remember those from school as well. So it's cool to hear that you have conversations with your students and all that. But I, I think it's something that we can all benefit from. Like, hey, can we do this? You know, with less. And it's interesting too because you know we are kind of you know looking towards like uh, efficiency and all these other things, and that. Those, those typically come from some form of subtracting, even though we're kind of just making up for that time that we saved and all that. But anyways, anyways, I 1000% agree, super beneficial. And I think, you know, more places need to be looking at this stuff. So yeah, we got a couple more questions for you. And one of the, one of my favorite things to learn about is, is how we hold on to our beliefs Right, with this kung fu grip. I'm always reading books on just like cognitive psychology and just, you know, how we have thinking errors and all that. But beliefs are just one of the most difficult things to get rid of. And as a recovering addict, like that was just something that completely changed my mind when I, or my life rather, when I subtracted this belief, you know, that I I knew everything or I didn't need help and all these other things, right? So, as i've grown and gone on my you know recovery journey and just looking around whether it's you know talking about politics or you know talking with people who believe in bad science or, you know especially during covid uh, i've i've just seen how difficult it is for people to let go of beliefs and it could affect people in their you know their jobs their relationships and all that and sometimes it's just how we were raised with certain beliefs that we're holding on to so based on your research why why do you think it's so difficult for us to subtract beliefs and do you have any tips advice for what we can start doing uh doing to like address them and you know
1: work on it wow well congratulations on that nine years sober is very impressive um and yeah it (laughs) subtracting beliefs is hard i mean i use two examples in the book one is and both of them are you know kind of humorous but they're very similar to how we all do this and so one is you know my son you know believes in Santa Claus and we um i think it was his 4-year-old christmas he got a box of legos for christmas and of course legos are made out of plastic and he had he he came up to me and he said hey dad you know i didn't know that i didn't i thought santa claus couldn't make plastic you know because i think he had seen these videos with the elves like using wood and stuff to make the toys and i said oh 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 yeah yeah for stuff like legos Santa Claus works with Amazon, he outsources. And that was totally fine for my son because it it matched with like his prior beliefs of the world. So he believes in Santa Claus, he believes in uh, um, the wood workshop, and he knows about Amazon. And so like, it all made sense and he was happy to move on. The other story is this um, uh, cult followers. So Leon Festinger is just a brilliant researcher who um, had this great idea to study people's beliefs and how they changed he said i'm gonna join a cult uh and he embedded himself in this doomsday cult Uh, they thought the world was going to end and it was what was brilliant about his idea is that he'd have a really cool case study or he would be you know if the doomsday actually did come he was kind of hedging his bets and he would be safe so um but of course the doomsday didn't come and what happened at midnight on the night of the doomsday, the, at first the cult members started thinking about like, okay, well, that's not the official clock of the apocalypse, right? It's, you know, it's actually five minutes ahead. So just wait a few more minutes, the doomsday will come and we will be beamed up or wherever they were headed. Um, Of course, five minutes passed. Nothing happened. They're sitting there. The room got really quiet from like midnight till four in the morning. And then at four in the morning, they kind of there was this announcement from the leader who said it worked. We we staved off the apocalypse because of our belief and everybody was happy with that explanation and they kind of stayed in this doomsday cult and moved on um and again it's you know it's really hard to change our beliefs even when we're presented with very clear evidence that they're wrong whether it's you know plastic legos or whether it's a doomsday that doesn't happen um so it's you know The same thing that we've been talking about, where it's hard to subtract from the Legos, where it's hard to subtract from social situations or travel itineraries uh, also applies to our mental models and these ideas that are in our head. And I think the biggest thing is to to know that that is the case. Um, But some of the tools that we can um, that we've talked about and for these other situations also apply here. So you know one thing that worked in our experiments was these reminders and we give people reminders in the experiments hey you can add or subtract to solve the Legos or to solve the random grids on a computer screen when we did that more people subtracted and so for experimental purposes that was evidence that look if the if this reminder gets more people to subtract um, and The reminder didn't get more people to add, even though it also recommended or suggested adding. Um, That was evidence that the we weren't already thinking of subtracting the reminder increased the rates of subtracting but didn't increase rates of adding so the adding reminder was redundant the subtracting reminder brought new ideas to mind so what reminders can we put in place to subtract our own beliefs right um so just as i when i do my weekly to-do list i will force myself to think of stop doings i also have time throughout the um throughout the week set aside to say okay what are things that you know are occupying space in my mental models that I either no longer believe or that aren't you know kind of at the level of priority that some of the other things that I believe are and so this forces you to think about these old beliefs and and think about subtracting them and it's not easy um so uh yeah I, I think um I'm so glad you asked about it though, because I, I think it's one. I think this is the most important area in which we're overlooking subtraction. You know, you know, what's crazy, Lighty?
0: So I've I've actually had, you know, a bunch of authors on here, like, you know, Andy Norman uh, with his book called Mental Immunity and uh, with others like Michael Shermer, where we talked about skepticism and just questioning and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I'm so glad that, you know, (laughs) I was able to ask you this question, too, because I, I didn't even think about like reminders like that's, that's one of my main things, right? I think a lot of us, like we know something's good for us, but we forget. So how do we set up these reminders and eventually they become a habit and stuff where we just kind of, you know, pause and say, you know, check our, you know, mental models. Like you said, like, you know, is this something that still holds true? Is this something that I need to adjust, you know, based on new information or whatever it is. And that can be with literally anything it can even be with you know ourselves our lives you know like for example going back to my addiction like I had a belief that I could never get better and that belief was adjusted when I saw that other people got better. So then it was, okay, maybe I can get better if I do this. Right. But when it comes to just, you know, science and you know what I believe, uh, when it's like, for example, should I get the vaccine? (laughs) You know, it's like, we have to adjust our beliefs on, you know, new news and evidence and research and and all that kind of stuff. So I dig the reminder idea. So maybe that's like one of those things where you put something on your wrist, or, or I I don't know. Um, but yeah, that was that was great. I haven't I haven't had anybody on the podcast <laughs> talk about that yet. So that's great. Um, so lastly, one one last question. Uh, I I really enjoy like the end of the book where you focused on a variety of real world issues that come from this tendency we have to add. And yeah, one of the most important subjects you talked about was climate change. So can you kind of break it down for the audience right before they leave this podcast episode and run and grab the book? Like, how is addition negatively affecting climate change and what, what can each of us do uh, you know, on a personal level to subtract and hopefully kind of curb
1: these effects of global warming? Yeah, I'm glad we're ending on this one. It's uh, the, why I came to write the book um, or why I kind of started to study this. I view this kind of default to adding as a, a fundamental mindset that's holding us back in climate change and, and a whole bunch of other pursuits. And I think, you know, for climate change, we need to stop thinking about the amount of emissions in the atmosphere as this unbreachable baseline. And, and we're starting to do better there, but for a really long time, we thought about, okay, here are the options. We're going to either kind of continue... On the path that we're on, or we're gonna reduce the amount of emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere, and you know that's better than not reducing the amount of emissions that we're putting in the atmosphere. But it doesn't do anything to solve what has now become the fundamental problem, which is that there there's more CO2 in the atmosphere than scientists think is safe to be there. And so we so clearly need to subtract. We need to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, and that means needs to be part of our um, part of our response to climate change. And it's increasingly being done. I mean, people are increasingly thinking about ways to do this, whether through reforestation um, or, you know, kind of higher tech methods. Um, but for a long time, we didn't think about it. And overlooking subtraction in that context has has held us back. Um, on a personal level, I think this is a really hard one because uh, we need to act at a systemic level here. And so on a personal level, I think the biggest thing is, you know, vote and, you know, lobby politicians and join these groups that are trying to address climate change. But in terms of a personal subtraction, one that I mentioned in the book is this notion of divestment. Um, And this is something that I've done. And basically what you do is you take your investments out of companies that are contributing to climate change so the fossil fuel companies that are you know in their strategic plans are saying we're going to burn this this much and shoot this much emissions into the atmosphere you don't need to invest in those companies and it it, uh, in fact doesn't make sense to invest in those companies if you're you know have a million dollar portfolio invested some in fossil fuels and then put solar panels on your roof you're essentially like kind of fighting yourself whereas if you can divest um, and divesting doesn't mean you lose your money it just means you invest it in in other stocks and there are more and more kind of mutual funds and, and other options that are coming up where you can not be contributing to climate change um uh and but the general point as a subtractive option here is that when you do that you're actually like reducing tension in the system so you divest divest from your portfolio and then you can put the solar panels on your roof too and you're doing twice as much good as you would otherwise for the same basic cost so yeah a, a subtractive option here i think is divesting so basically taking money out of the thing that you're trying to make better
0: yeah you make excellent points and and yeah, like I said, everybody needs to check out the book because you you dive into some of these different topics and you have ideas and solutions and and, and yeah that 's why I love about reading books like yours, especially when they 're just so different and unique it it gives me new things you know to think about, and you know like when we 're talking about you know taking away and reducing the tension in the system and all of that like the the pandemic has been absolutely terrible and disrupted so many of our lives but we, for example, subtracted a lot of driving with people, you know, working from home and things like that. And I think that was one of the things I was thinking about as you were discussing that in the book. But, yeah, anyways, I appreciate your time so,
1: so much, Lighty. Thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. This was really fun to talk about, and I so appreciate your your kind words of, about the book. And um, it, it really means a lot to me that it can be helpful to... To people like you so um yeah have a good day thanks for thanks for having me on all right
0: everybody there you have it that was my conversation with lighty klotz about his new book subtract and like i said it's you you guys all know you all know how many books i read and this was totally different this was totally different like I like to dive deep into it and yeah I I love this book because it it you know there were certain things like brought up and uh but overall like it was a completely unique perspective and angle and I love the research that Lighty's doing so do me a favor check out the description down below uh go follow Lighty uh I have his twitter on there but most importantly grab a copy of his book like I said if nothing else it will help you start looking at situations of problem solving in a completely new way. I loved it. But yeah, while you're down in the description, make sure you are following me over on Twitter and Instagram as well at the rewired soul. Uh, Yeah. I I'm constantly, uh, you know, updating everybody about, you know, what books I'm reading, who's coming on the podcast. Uh, These episodes come out, you know, weeks after I record them. So you'll see, you know, who I'm talking to and what, what's in the pipeline for upcoming uh, episodes. So yeah, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. And if you are new to the podcast and you love learning about all sorts of cool stuff and having good conversations, make sure you're following or subscribed, uh, whether you're on Apple or Spotify, if you're on Apple, leave a rating, leave a review and make sure you share this episode or any of the episodes you like. All that stuff, when you like, subscribe, uh, rate, review, share, all that stuff helps the algorithm. It pushes the podcast out to more people so we can grow this beautiful little community. So rather than subtracting from the community, we wanna add to the community, all right? And and yeah, for all of you uh, who wanna support the podcast in any way, down in the description, there's some more links. Like I've self-published some mental health books over at the TheRewiredSoul.com. You can become a patron. And there's also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, as, As you all know, like mental health, my recovery is a huge part of my life. And yeah, therapy helps. And BetterHelp Online Therapy is a service I've personally used. So if you want affordable online therapy, comfort of your own home, check out that affiliate link down below. All right, so huge thanks again to Lighty Klotz. Make sure you check out his book. And I hope all of you have a wonderful rest of your day and I'll see you in the next one.